Escape from Plan A. All right, welcome to another episode of Escape from Plan A. Uh, I'm your host, Adam Goodman, and I'm here with uh, my guest today, Joy Alessi. Hi, Joy. Hi, Adam. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. And we're getting, we're today, we're going to be doing uh, and recording um, for you guys the uh, third episode of our Adoptees Without Citizenship series, which we're calling um, The Manufactured Crisis. And um, we're going to be hearing uh, a pre- some pre-recorded um, conversations that we've had with other uh, um, esteemed guests. And um, I think, Joy, uh, it would be great if you could just introduce and read um, our the bios for these guests so that um, when we hear from them, uh, uh, our, our listeners will know who they are. Sure. So, I think first we could start with Dr. Diane Kuntz. Yes, I'm so thrilled that we were able to, to catch up with Diane Coons. Um, she's the executive director of the Center for Adoption Policy, which is a preeminent legal and policy institute engaged in adoption and family creation issues. And she just really has a wide breadth of knowledge on uh, adoption itself, um, the history of it, and really um, all the way through you know, to uh, the Child Citizenship Act. Um, She's advised U.S. government agencies on adoption-related issues, and she actually helped author the Haitian Humanitarian Parole um, and the Help Haiti Act of 2010, which granted U.S. citizenship to Haitian adopted children. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, uh, it's always great um, talking to Diane. Um, And we've also... We also um, had a conversation with Dan Berger, right? Right. And, and Dan is a leading partner at the immigration law firm of Kieran Berger and Clint in Northampton, Massachusetts. And just to give you some background on Dan, he studied immigration history and graduated from Cornell Law School and has practiced immigration law for over 20 years. And I should say that he is also an adoptee. Which That's I right. think is something that most people uh, aren't necessarily aware of. So we're just thrilled to to talk to him. Um, you know, he really has a stake in in um, this issue. That's right. And um, last but not least, um, we also um, spoke to uh, Emily Howe. Right, and Emily is absolutely one of our you know, favorite advocates. Um, She serves as the board of director um, of the Pan-Asian Lawyers of San Diego. And she's also the co-chair of the Adoptee Affinity Network of the National Asian Pacific American Bar Association, also known as NAPABA. Uh, And she works on public interest issues and helps constituents navigate the the complex legal system, which we all know um, is going to be part of our uh, conversation today. And I would add that Emily is also an adoptee from South Korea, which, um, you know, increases her compassion and passion for this issue as well. That's a great way of putting it. It's both compassion, right? And also just the the passion because it's like personal, right? It's it's right. It's so personal. Yeah. 
And um, so I guess, you know, we'll just get right into it. So, um, because, uh, you know, we're trying to concentrate um, in this episode on a lot of the history um, of adoption and how that intersects with the history of immigration, how that's changed. Um, and, you know, uh, legislation like the Child Citizenship Act and um, the Adoptee Citizenship Act. So, to jump right into it, um, you know, Americans have practiced adoption for more than a century. Um, with the first legal frameworks, um, you know, governing uh, adoption uh, dating back to the 1850s. So, you know, there's a long history of this. Um, since that, since then, um, the the foundational features of legal adoption established a permanent bond equal to natural born children, um, where both adoptive parents and children are responsible for and entitled to the American family's physical, emotional, and financial um, benefits. Uh, and I think that's that, that foundation um, that, uh, you know, we, I always try to keep an eye on that uh, and it is important to keep in mind. Um, and for listeners who may be new to this topic, international adoption, now called inter-country adoption, um, is a foreign policy priority of the United States State Department. Um, inter-country adoption became a federal humanitarian issue in the early 1950s after the Korean War and continued through the Vietnam War. Um, since then, the federal government has, has facilitated upwards of 500,000 adoptions from as many as 139 countries. So, this is not a small issue. It's not something that, um, you know, only happens periodically. It's a very, um, well, I would say steady at times, but it, it's something that, that happens very often. Um, underpinning this podcast discussion will be, as I mentioned, two pieces of legislation, the Child Citizenship Act of 2000, which granted automatic citizenship to certain adoptees while establishing conditions and denying citizenship to other classes of adoptees. And I think we've mentioned this before. Um, I, I know I have in just my discussions of adoption previously uh, and in this series as well. Uh, so, there's that, the CCA. Um, and um, the second piece of legislation is the Adoptee Citizenship Act, which is a bill aimed at rectifying the legal exclusions that were, you know, um, that were introduced or stayed uh, because of the Child Citizenship Act of 2000. Um, you know, through a series of questions and other pre-recorded conversations, um, our panel of legal experts explain how international policies came to challenge the legal framework for domestic adoption and how denying U.S. citizenship to international adoptees ultimately alters the founding principles of American adoption law and underscores the significance of and importance of the Adoptee Citizenship Act. So, you know, even though I mentioned that um, the history of the practice of adoption goes back to 1850, we're going to begin our, um, you know, our, our discussion in the early 1950s because that's when it became a real priority for the U.S. State Department because of the uh, Korean War. Uh, and um, let's, you know, begin, let's listen as uh, Dr. Kuhns and immigration specialist Dan Berger explain how immigration law changed to accommodate intercountry adoption. So then we get to World War II, then we get to um, what are we going to do with displaced persons. We do have an act that allows uh, 
some refugees to come. Still very discriminatory, does not allow Asian refugees to come. Uh, makes, uh, what's the word, uh, discriminates effectively against Jews and a little bit against Catholics. I mean, it's still the same system. We're going to have a few more people, but we're going to all have the better people in their their way. Uh, though we do let um, children um, of soldiers come sometimes, you know, uh, in from Germany or Japan. So then we have nineteen. We have the Koreans who come. They come under the Refugee uh, Acts. Uh, nineteen. There's a nineteen fifty three Act. There's a nineteen fifty seven Act. There's a nineteen. But nineteen sixty one is where we say uh, orphans don't need quota numbers. So that's a big thing. Okay, so the orphans don't count against the quota. The, they don't count against the quota. And then in 65, you get rid of national origin quotas. These acts allow a president to give um, parole power, which, you know, humanitarian parole, which is, you know, if there's an emergency situation, a child can come. And that's the baby lift. That's just presidential um, and attorney general signing a piece of paper. It's what we used in Help Haiti as well, in, in a different provision, you know, emergency rescue. Uh, but Koreans come, and but they don't come as citizens, right? And and Korean situation is complicated. And why is it even more complicated? Because Koreans don't come with adoptions; they come with guardianship. The immigration service is always a little nervous about relationships that are created on paper, and one of the most common ones, adoption and marriage. So, in general, just being adopted or just getting married does not automatically change anybody's immigration status. Um, if, if a child is adopted or a person is married, then they have to file papers. And sometimes people don't realize this. And you know, I, I get calls all too frequently from clients who have gone to another country. Um, let's say a Greek American goes to Greece and adopts a child. That That is a, is a real problem if the person has not come up with an immigration plan ahead of time. Um, more recently, the Immigration Service has been looking more, even more carefully at these cases. And what they do is they, in the law, they've set some, some guidelines to try to deal with what, what they worry about is, you know, is kind of the, the idea that um, somebody is going to marry somebody or adopt them just to get them into the country. Uh, because it's a, a nephew or a friend's child, rather than because this is a real parent-child relationship. So more recently, we've been seeing challenges on these cases where the Immigration Service will ask for evidence that it is a bona fide uh, parent-child relationship. Are they living together? Are the parents going to the um, uh, to parent-child conferences, taking the child to the doctor, and so forth? Um, and, and also, uh, what what they're there are some specific requirements and there are a few different categories that are used for immigration, for green cards, for adopted children. Um, but some of, some of the um, really artificial requirements are, are basically designed to try to avoid, to, to try to make sure that it really is a parent-child relationship. So in most cases, the child needs to be under the age of 16, uh, in a few cases under the age of 18. Um, in some cases, the parent and child would have had to have lived with, lived together for two years before the child comes here. Uh, and those are some ways that the Immigration Service tries to look at um, a situation and, and feel comfortable that this really is a, a parent-child relationship. 
um, looking back sort of more recent history than what than what Diane was talking about in the early 1990s there was a uh, an international convention called the Hague Convention and and basically that was trying to add on more um, kind of uniformly accepted patterns of, of, of adoption and I, I think it was a good idea you know truth be told when I was in law school in the early 90s I wrote something saying that this was a great idea just to have more protections. The U.S. signed on to the Hague Convention in 2008. Um, what we've seen is it is still really a great idea. I mean, anytime you you organize the process and create protections for children, that's good. Um, what we've seen in practice is that the Hague Convention is so expensive and complicated and slow that it is a real challenge. And over the last um, you know, 10 years, we've really seen adoptions plummet. Um, the number of international adoptions in the United States is, is you know, less than 10% of what it was 10 years ago. So that's a real issue. Um, also, just in terms of, you know, since we will, the main focus of this is about citizenship, um, all of the categories for children to come to the United States as adoptees are green card, which means permanent residence. Yeah, there's no there's really almost no category where an adopted child can come here as a citizen. Um, and that's really where the, the uh, Child Citizenship Act and the Adoptee Citizenship Act become important. So we heard from Diane and Dan about some of the history. And um, Joy, what did you think about that? What are your thoughts? Right. So I think what essentially Dan and Diane are talking about is in the context of um, the era, the 1950-ish, um, you know, place where um, intercountry adoption uh, is really come about. Uh, it was both a reactive and evolutionary. So Congress is responding to the fallout of war, the Korean War and the Vietnam War. Um, and when I uh, say fallout, I mean displacement, migration, and obviously orphanhood. And first, they begin to respond through small legislation and then through larger immigration reforms. But as Dan points out, that the despite the lack of cohesion between state adoption and the larger immigration policies that were involved in the um, you know, Orphanhood Act and later the, you know, the, the policy of intercountry adoption, at the federal level and the the, the Intercountry adoption is solely meant to get children here as permanent residents. And that was really the policy framework, uh, that the citizenship piece was something that um, was to be taken care of later. And it was obviously, as we know, left up to the parents. But uh, for that time period and for the next few decades, really, this was the essence of the policy. It was simply that... Uh, Intercountry adoption was a foreign policy, uh, and uh, the children were only intended to come here for that, and they were supposed to only come on uh, legal permanent resident visas. So, uh, you know, I think that this is a good point um, to sort of cut to the next sort of era <laughs> or the next sex segment of our history, of our story. Um, so we, we were starting in the fifties and as, as, as Joy and I have been discussing it, as you heard from Diane and Dan, the systems were sort of, were very piecemeal. You know, we had an orphan act. We had very special, po very special policies because of the Korean war and the Vietnam war. 
and everything seemed to be quote unquote okay, working all right. Um, people were not. I, th- I I think for whatever reason there wasn't like this um, uh, focus or f- uh, or frenzy about proving that people were citizens and thus like you know uh, supposed to be here or allowed to be here. Um, so the next era of this um, is, but 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 to also make a point, these were not done. These were done out of, I think, Joy, you made a good point. These were sort of done out of necessity or they were done because they were um, children of, of veterans, maybe uh, military personnel. Um, so th- it, was a, it was a different reason you know, for the, the bulk of the adoptions. But when we move into the, um, the next decades in the 60s to the 80s, um, inter-country adoption becomes much more commercialized. Um, we're systemizing the process for prospective parents, as well as the immigration requirements. Um, you know, this is a, a, a large period, right? We're talking about a three-decade span, the 60s to the 80s. Um, so, we understand the processes were on a continuum. But yet today, this era is a critical focus, meaning the population of children adopted for 1983 are the recipients of the policy continuum that fell apart. Like, as I meant, as we all were talking about, with the Child Citizenship Act, if you were born before 1983, none of the policies in that act apply to you. Um, so even even though all these issues we've been talking about about you know legitimacy and, and trying to get citizenship, uh, you know, and all these things, people were aware of it when they were discussing the Child Citizenship Act. But for whatever reason, it didn't go the full distance. It didn't go the distance, as you said, Joy. Um, and, and the, the children adopted in this era, the sixties through the early eighties before 1983 are, are, are it, it, they're still at risk. So we asked our experts to explain what happened to the naturalization piece. And the naturalization piece is the citizenship piece, right? To naturalize means that you become a citizen, um, of the intercountry adoption framework. Um, so first we're going to hear from Diane. I think that is one of the biggest problems here is that you have 50 states, one federal government, several agencies in the federal groups and you know departments in the federal government that also say things in very confusing fashion. And it used to be for when a lot of the people we're talking about came that that was before you had USCIS, what was the immigration authority, was the INS. Uh, they did things in regional offices and the regional offices did things differently. I kid you not. And this made no sense. And, and so somebody, you know, even, and that was even on the early years of USCIS with adoption that you'd have one uh, office in Oregon would say one thing and the office in Washington would say something else about the paperwork and which was very confusing to people. And before the internet, and I think this is a very important thing because these days it may not be fun reading, but you can find out a lot of information on the internet about citizenship, right? You couldn't find these things um, in the same way in, in before that. And you know, how did you find out the law? You know, it was very difficult because, especially in the early days, 
of ado- international adoption, you've got lawyers who, who don't see this very often. And even today, I mean, I don't do immigration law questions. You know, I go to Dan. I mean, I, I, I have a broad idea, but I would never want to do people to rely on this. I, I'm, you know, because, but people didn't know this. They said, oh yeah, you're fine. You're adopted. It's great. You're an American. Of course you are. Why wouldn't you be? Because you're not. That's why. <laughs> You know, and, you know, I've had people say to me over and over again through the years, call up and say, well, you know, this person was adopted, so they're a citizen, right? Wrong. And that's the the problem, you know, and especially for when your parents adopted you, you know, and people, how would they find out if the lawyer said, it's okay? And we're going to hear from Dan. Maybe I'll just start with that, uh, Diane, and thanks, Joy. Um, so I, I think there are really two issues here. One is just that the um, things have gotten more complicated. I mean, I, I grew up in Buffalo um, as, as an adoptee, but that's not really relevant in the 1970s. And um, we, we would just cross the border without ID to Canada. Um, you know, I would say I was a U.S. citizen. It, it, it As you all know, um, Paperwork requirements have gotten more complicated. It's it's more complicated to get a driver's license now. It's more complicated to cross a border. Um, it's uh, it, it they're just looking for more evidence. And so I think that's a piece of this is that it may have been easier to be here in the 1960s as a permanent resident and not a U.S. citizen because really the main difference between permanent residence and citizenship. Um, has to do with uh, the ability to vote, um, the ability to travel in and out of the U.S., to get a U.S. passport, um, to sponsor other family members. But for the most part, somebody with a green card uh, who had come here as an adoptee in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and and really for most of the 80s, um, probably could do a lot of what they want. And then people tend to find out that they're not U.S. citizens if they didn't know um, and, and Joy, maybe you could speak to this too, but if they're, you know, more, more recently, if they're filling out a financial aid form or applying to college or joining the military or applying for a passport to travel, um, or if, if they uh, commit some kind of minor uh, uh, crime and have, um, have interaction with the police. And uh, so I think that's, that's number one, is that I think it is, it, it just is, is harder to exist. And a lot of that had to do with um, perceptions of, of of immigrants and terrorism. There was the 1993 World Trade Center uh, truck bombing, and then of course September 11th. And after each of those, the, the the paperwork requirements became more complicated. Right. That's a it's a great point. And and just you know again just just to sort of humanize this. Um, if if you think about a family that's going through an international adoption, if you've been through it or if you watch people go through it. It's a lot of it's a lot of waiting. It's a lot of emotion. It's a lot of paperwork, um, and it's sometimes a lot of expense. So, really, as, you know, as Joy was saying, I think what what happened was families would would go through a lot, and then when the child arrived, you know, quite naturally, just focus all their energy on the child, um, and it was very easy to e- either to not know or to forget that there was more paperwork that still needed to be done. So that's that's sort of the backdrop. But yes. Um, the the Child Citizenship Act really of 2000 really came out of an early understanding of this, where there were a few uh, children in particular who who grew up and then 
were um, just didn't didn't know. You know, they they didn't realize that they weren't U.S. citizens. If you don't try to travel outside the United States, if you're you know living back then before September 11th, you might you might not know. You know, they they, they grew up here, and then they would. Um, Sometimes they would just get caught up in a voter registration drive and uh, later on find out that they'd committed a felony by voting or, or and a deportable offense or um, uh, that they uh, you know, were, were applying for financial aid. And so, yes, you're right. Sometimes it, it, it's much more difficult to move a child to citizenship over the age of 18. So, yes, you're, you're right, Joy, that um, you know, once the child is 18, you know, you could say, well, the child's an adult, you would expect them to be able to to figure this out themselves. But but number one, the child may just not have no idea. And number two, it is it is more complicated. There's no automatic or expedited citizenship that's available over the age of 18. What are your thoughts, Joy, on what we just heard from uh, from Diane and Dan? Right. So early on, Dan made the, you know, the distinctions in immigration, the area of immigration that are um, really tied into um, the concerns that we are seeing around the 1990 areas and then into the 2000s, where as culturally as we become much more concerned um, about who's coming in and out of our country. And this is obviously in response to uh, the various terrorist acts that occurred in 1990. And then again, in 2000, the truck bombing in 1990 and the, you know, 9-11 in 2000. And so, uh, you know, the two areas that uh, have always been a concern in terms of immigration have been the family-based, um, you know, visas and whatnot. So that clearly involves marriage and adoption. And so as a country, uh, we begin looking much more closely at family-based uh, visas and immigration and um, adoption-related visas. And the federal government, as I understand it, him to say is that began looking very closely all of a sudden at, um, you know, what really constitutes um, a legitimate family um, and um, what we are going to be allowing to, um, you know, come in, you know, to continue to come in, what, what sort of family relationships we're going to allow to come into the country. Um, so in my view, we're really culturally starting to look at um, defining what makes a family and trying to apply our laws to that. But we also decide that, or the other issue is that in, in this time that we are questioning as a country uh, who is a legitimate family member, it's curious as to why intercountry adoption becomes sort of wrapped up in this because, as we've t- discussed, intercountry adoption has been around for decades and there was already a, you know, a, a decision made on that that, um, you know, a structure for that. So adoptees who come into the you know, United States for the purpose of adoption were a legitimate uh, um, source of, of family migration. That was a little, so mm-hmm. I think that there, at that time, there was not a, you know, a, a centralized uh, department just to deal with intercountry adoption. 
And so naturally, intercountry adoption became just part of the larger um, policy framework for uh, uh, looking at and scrutinizing um, which family members are, you know, legitimate. Right. It, 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 um, it sort of by default fell into the overall immigration framework, it seems, rather than having its own sort of special place. Um, it just sort of was like, oh, well, they have to get visas and all these other things. So let's just shove them into the immigration bucket. It seems like that, that that's what happened. Um, and that causes a lot of issues, right? Right. So um, if adoptees had not received citizenship and, you know, they were uh, clearly had been here um, as permanent residents, um, then it, they were naturally being looked at um, in terms of um, qualifications for citizenship because we were looking at everybody. We were looking at every family, mm-hmm. every, every family source that would want to, you know, immigrate into the country at that point. We were looking at everyone. Um, right. I mean, we're time- looking at every marriage, marriage license and every, everything. Right. 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 And so adoptees were naturally uh, fell into that category as legal permanent residents uh, because they don't, there was not a specific class just for adoptees. But that, that neatly um, sort of follows or, or leads us into um, the next expert that we wanted to, to, um, to listen to um, is uh, Emily Howe, where um, Emily and I talk about sort of the idea of legitimacy of, of a child and of a family member, a little bit of the history because she goes into how it used to be pretty um, common or a common um, sticking point when it came to um, family immigration uh, or just family formation in America. Uh, and um, just uh, and she also talks more about uh, the importance of the uh, Adoptee Citizenship, Citizenship Act. Right. So I think her comments are interesting. And um, I think uh, I was interested in hearing her speak on the um, the sort of legal history of how we got to um, what we determine as a country, what constitutes a family and the laws that protect that. So the the overarching question for for the undocumented adoptees is, in essence, what is a family, who's a child, and who gets to decide. So the concept of legitimacy is placing the adoptee, the orphan child, into the same legal status as someone who was biologically born. So all the rights, privileges should be, should be the same in essence. However, the immigration agencies in, in the U.S. government have a plethora of different uh, de- definitions for, for what a child is in, in their, in essence, picking and choosing, um, which is why the adoptees are in this weird limbo. Precisely. It's uh, in essence, mind boggling be- because a number of folks seem to have thought that these orphan children aren't going to grow, grow up um, and all the rights and privileges are are based on what others have 
done. Um, so, so when we're speaking about the concept of illegitimacy, American culture has essentially ad adapted to our modern families and largely eradicated the, the archaic notion of illegitimacy or uh, not, you know, ha having pa parents. Um, but immigration is one of the last areas that is allowing overt discrimination and in protections of the laws. Um, so if we're discussing history, um, back in the 1960s, the Supreme Court had begun to strike down laws against um, that, that, that treated uh, children who didn't have pa parents or who had been orphans differently. Or, or um, the, the Supreme Court had, in essence, been striking down laws that um, were construed against uh, adoptees, but immigration law is one of the last areas that um, that we're seeing discrimination or, or uh, the adopted children being treated differently than the biological ch children. Yeah, I, I'd say you're 100% correct that there should be common sense and efficiency in the law. Part of the dilemma right now is how it's being uh, applied. Um, so for instance, if you have political connections, there's a four-year-old, you, you know, who was adopted from Peru, who lacked status and the government wanted to remove to Peru, um, th that child was able to be assisted um, on an individual basis. But they were but four years old. I mean, isn't that part of it too? They were four? Um, th they're four years old. They're, they're I mean, None of us are really able to assert our rights at age four. Um, well, what I mean is uh, the government's like, well, this is a case of pathetic. a four-year-old child, right? Like if, if I think one of the bigger, pro one big problem with a lot of the adoptees that we're talking about is that they're all adults. So oh. it's harder for the government to be like, well, you know, to, to show the sympathy, right? You, you're completely correct. Um, I mean, I... I keep thinking of, you know, the, there's this Peter Pan concept that all the people involved in the adoption processes seem to forget the children would grow up. Um, and then suddenly when they do, it defies logic to suddenly transfer the responsibilities and failures of others onto them. I mean, cause, because these, these are six months year olds, 18 months year olds, three year olds. I mean, like, in what world does it make any sense to suddenly say you're at fault um, for the the failures of others? And in no, in very few other circumstances, does anyone ever think this is just or, or fair? I was making that point too for many years. That it seems like, and I'm sure that there are exceptions to that, but I I just don't think that it's a commonly held legal doctrine in America or in culturally that we sort of punish the children for the crimes of the, of their parents. It, it, um, it, and this seems like a situation where we're punishing the children for the mistakes of the adults in their lives. It, it's um, so important so, that you articulated that because this is one of the few cases that or scenarios where the government is still allowed to discriminate based on these concepts yeah. of illegitimacy or um, adopt adoptees or, you, you know, not having your biological p 
parent be your right. parent. I mean, it, it's been largely struck down and, and almost verbatim what we what you said um, has been uh, the case law or has been written in, into rulings of the Supreme Court. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, th- there have been cases that ha- have verbatim said no child is responsible for his birth and be analyzing the illegitimate child is an ineffectual as well as an unjust way of deterring the parent. Um, so that goes yeah. to the whole concept of <laughs> equal protection, um, you know, right. uh, discriminating based on the status of birth. Right. And, and as you mentioned, a lot of the time, the parents were not trying to commit a crime, mm-hmm. right? They weren't doing this on purpose. Not that obviously, like, you need to be aware that you've committed a crime to sort of be guilty of a crime. But I, I do feel like in a lot of instances, it was sort of just simple, neg- uh, simple, um, uh, uh, simple, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, ignorance. It was it, just it, ignorance. It was an omission or, or ignorance yeah. or, um, yeah, it, it wasn't like an intentional error. And, and that goes back, back to your whole point about um, this being paper, Paperwork, so it, it just seems egregious yeah. that we would be going after, after individuals who were babies brought into this country, yeah. who are now um, adults, lived their whole life um, under the American system, and, and and then wasting taxpayers' money <laughs> to go after right. these individuals, uh, right. like further victimizing them. Pa- paperwork is always better than, than no paperwork because then you can prove a series of events uh, occurred. Um, immigration law is so convoluted and the immigration officers have not even given consistent I- information to some of the applicants. Um, for instance, uh, uh, the immigration agencies have said to file for an N-400 uh, naturalization application uh, others have said apply for N six hundred application processes, and then they'll come back and and say, oh, actually, there's not enough proof of you entering for your green card, your lawful admission for permanent residence. So, um, I, I believe that there is hope and that there are rights that should be uh, asserted. Um, it's very much on a case by case. Uh, basis. uh, It's very much, you know, how the individual circumstances and facts are applied to the law. At the same time, intuitively, it it seems as though uh, it shouldn't be on on, an individual basis that, that if all these people are essentially the the children of these U.S. citizen parents brought here for the purposes of living here permanently as the children of U.S. citizen parents, that, that, that the law should be consistent and protect them. You no, know, you're, you're fundamentally right. I mean, this is a life and death issue for, for so many individuals. And historically, family rights um, have been state sovereignty rights. Um, it, it's been state law that has decided whether a person has been legitimated under the law. Uh, um, and concurrently, we have the federal government suddenly usurping in saying, well, even though traditionally family law is a state 
objective, we're going to say that even though th- that's your legitimate parent, it, it doesn't suffice for the purposes of immigration, um, which defies logic. <laughs> right. Um, and, and so that's where the majority of families would not have known that family law is a, a state path and then immigration is a federal path. And so perhaps you had spent thousands of dollars to bring a child into your family and you, you're essentially relying on the information that your attorney or the adoption agency has provided to you. Um, and then the, 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 the child regardless of all of that, I mean, they, they, they have no agency or authority to over any of this. <laughs> I, I think that the solution is simple. Um, the, the solution is to treat the adopted children of U.S. citizen parents the same as if they were the biological children of, of U.S. citizen parents. And so it, it, the the policy fix has um, generated bipartisan support. Um, It just that last momentum to have have people care, know about the issue and to put pressure to actually enact it into law. Um, But the, the implementation isn't really any different than how any uh, foreign born child of a U.S. citizen. Um, it, yeah, it, it should just be an N-600 um, form and they approve it. Um, th- th- this- wow. Well, Emily's uh, comments were really salient and it really just brings us back to the importance of the Adoptee Citizenship Act. It really, sh- this issue is really just a common sense issue. It shouldn't be a terribly difficult policy fix. Uh, we're not trying to change uh, immigration law per se. Uh, we're actually just trying to make sure that the uh, the law is actually uh, carried out the way it was always intended to be, um, absent the various uh, gaps in the policy that we've discussed. So I think that the Adoptee Citizenship Act, which aims to specifically rectify the um, the exclusion in the bar, the date bar in the Child Citizenship Act uh, is really um, a good step in the right direction. And, and um, it doesn't seem like it's uh, too difficult of a fix. Yeah, um, I would agree with that. Uh, and it's just a, it's a real travesty that we haven't been able to get it done. But um, the the new, the, the latest version of the bill has been introduced um, in the House. Uh, um, as of March 4th, right? Right. Um, and the sponsor of the bill is uh, Rep. Adam Smith, um, as he's been the sponsor of the bill for the last few few Congresses. Uh, and, um, you know, we're, we're really going to make a, a big push to get it passed. Um, right. And um, the new Republican uh, lead sponsor is uh, Representative John Curtis from Utah. And so, again, we have a bipartisan bill from the outset, and we're optimistic. I think um, there's, you know, we're 
building on the support that we have raised uh, over the last few Congresses. Clearly, not all of the members of Congress who um, signed on to the bill are still in office, but um, you know, this is the process that we have to go through again. Uh, but we're hopeful, and mm-hmm. I think um, we're off to a good start. Yeah. Um, so yeah, again, just, um, you know, thank you, Joy, um, for just, uh, you know, this whole journey of these, uh, of, of the podcast, but also just working with you on this issue. Uh, and, um, you know, thanks to, to Rana and to Dan and Diane and Emily, uh, and Sung Kwan and, uh, uh, our other adoptee colleagues that have been on this series. So, um, you know, again, thank you. And, um, you know, we continue to work. You know, this isn't the end. Right. And thank you so much, Adam, for your support and for the, you know, for garnering the support of uh, Plan A Magazine. Um, this has just been really an important series of, of uh, podcasts that we've done. We've told a story here. Um, this particular podcast we know is very difficult because we really covered a lot of um, history as well as uh, trying to shed light on um, how all of these very, very complex issues um, came to be. Uh, and so we want to thank our, our participants and our experts, as well as our audience for tuning in and uh, really um, uh, hopeful that uh, this brings a new understanding to um, advocates as um, well as just the general public on, on how these issues um, really um, came to be uh, so problematic in today's uh, climate. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, um, just, I guess a little house cleaning, uh, for the podcast, you know, just, um, you know, subscribe, like comment, uh, and, um, sign up for our Patreon, uh, if you like what you hear. Uh, and, um, a lot of what we've talked about, there'll be resources in the show notes, you know, organizations to follow, um, places to volunteer, uh, and also just places where you can learn even more, um, about the issue. So again, thank you very much. See you next time. 